is Patrick Daly and welcome to Interlinks. Interlinks is a programme about globalisation and the effects it has had on Ireland and other countries around the world over the last 50 years or so. In each programme, we interview a person from another country or with strong connections to another country to get their unique perspective on globalisation as it has affected them and the country they live in and its relationship with the wider world. There's a little bit of history, a dash of economics, a sprinkling of business and an overlay of personal experience both for me and from my interviewees from around the world. In recent programmes, we've travelled back and forth across the Atlantic, from Spain, Croatia and Germany on this side, to the US and Mexico on the other side. Today, we're coming home to Ireland to talk to a Donegal native, Liam Cassidy, a man who has worked the world over as an outstanding plant manager in some of the world's major multinational manufacturing organisations, such as Procter & Gamble, Gillette and General Motors. Liam has achieved outstanding results working at production plants both here in Ireland and around the world in places such as the US, China, India and the Czech Republic, and during his corporate career was justifiably known as an exceptional performance turnaround specialist. Since 2009, Liam has been running his own consultancy practice, LCL Consult, with bases in Dublin and Shanghai, and continues helping clients to achieve rapid improvements in the performance of their production plants through the application of a formula based on lean practices and strong leadership. I'm delighted to have Liam join us today to get his perspective on globalised production, the future of international business and Ireland's place in this competitive environment. Welcome Liam and thank you very much for being here with us today. Thanks, Patrick, and thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Liam, uh, we've known each other now for, I don't know, oh, well over 20 years or so, and at that time uh, you were working uh, in Oral-B in, uh, in Newbridge. But how did you actually uh, begin your career in manufacturing? How did that start? Well, I have to go back uh, quite some years, Patrick. Um, I went into the Army straight from secondary school. And uh, I'd done three years mm-hmm. and I enjoyed it immensely, but I wanted to, you know, try something else. I wasn't too sure what I wanted to do. Uh, I had harbored thoughts of going to Australia, uh, you know, and uh, th- things like that. But um, I went to London uh, with, a, with another guy who came out with me and uh, we saw this auto company uh, two days after we arrived there and they had these walk-in interviews that, like they had back in those days. So we yeah. went in and because we were ex-military, they took us particular interest in us and they took us off to a different room and uh, talked to us about different things about what we might want to do. And they put us, uh, so they offered us uh, a job. Uh, we had no clue what uh, this job, little clue what this job meant, but they, they, they wanted to see how we were suited, you know, for various things. So they put us into this program uh, where we spent some time in, in, in multiple departments like import-export, uh, work-study, which is the forerunner to industrial engineering. Mm-hmm. I, I spent about three months there. And then by accident, um, I ended up in running uh, a production line. A production supervisor uh, collapsed uh, one morning and they came into the department and looked for someone to come out and take over. And suddenly I was out there at 21 years of age looking at uh, over 40 people who were assembling speedometers. And after a while, when I got over the shock of being there, uh, I I loved it. And... um, that was my first taste of direct manufacturing, and uh, I never really lost that appetite for it after that. Mm-hmm. Then I, I uh, we were one a, a big supplier to GM, and I got to know some GM people who would come in and come down with us working on, on new products and stuff, and they uh, suggested to me that maybe I would like to go there. So I ended up uh, working in Dunstable for six months, 
uh, with GM who were in the process of moving their, their operation down to London. And uh, they put me in the planning department, and that's where I got the first real taste of supply chain, and again, my appetite uh, with that grew. And uh, they, I was with them for four years, and then they, they opened the plant, the Packard and Eckrick plant in Tala in 1975, mm-hmm. and I moved back then. And initially, I was working in the materials organization, running the warehouse, uh, shipping, um, uh, arranging for stuff to come through customs. Back in those days, there was just uh, the every border had its agents and problems, and yeah. I just hope with Brexit we don't go back to that. But uh, I do remember that all of that administration that just added added uh, cost. So uh, to fast forward a little bit, Patrick, uh, with the GM, I, I grew to be a senior manager. I ran the production operations, and then I ran the materials organization. And my first taste of lean, which was then called world class manufacturing came when I, I obtained a scholarship to study J- Japanese manufacturing techniques, okay. uh, which was a scholarship awarded by the EU. It was a six-month uh, uh, scholarship. <clears throat> no, I, never, I never actually managed to get to Japan because two weeks before I was due to go, my um, plant manager resigned, and uh, the other guy came in, brought in a German guy from Spain, and uh, he didn't want to lose his, uh, his production uh, manager. So, but he, he arranged alternative programs to, to his, mm-hmm. to, to fair to him for me. And that's when I, I, I began to get another view of how manufacturing should be approached. So, um, I had a, my first big project was, uh, was the installation of a new manufacturing, a new warehouse, a new manufacturing project in Tala. And that was one of the most successful projects. It was the first ever supermarket. Uh, uh, sorry, first ever warehouse based on, on supermarket principles mm-hmm. that GM had anywhere in the world. And it became a showpiece and it delivered it, and results far beyond what anyone had expected. Um, and then I, but I found that in the auto business, and this was the tragedy, the tragedy of the auto business, while they wanted, they were embracing the practices of lean, then called world-class manufacturing. They weren't, they didn't or couldn't adopt a philosophy, which is putting people at the center of things and treating people with uh, the utmost respect and invest in them and so forth. They were very top down. They were very, very, it was a very tough culture mm-hmm. and they couldn't move away from that. And uh, so I moved away from them and I went to join Gillette, which through Oral-B, uh, who, which was a division of Gillette. I ended up, I went down there to head up operations. And uh, I not uh, a couple of years after that, I, I ended up uh, running the running the factory. And that became, uh, I was put in to introduce uh, lean manufacturing, and we made it a showpiece for Oral-B and Gillette, and you know the people from all over that world were attracted to come to Newbridge, and we laid the foundations for that factory because it survived. Subsequently, survived the the buyout of uh, the takeover by Procter and Gamble in 2005, and uh, a real stern examination of that operation because they they originally came in with intentions to move it to Eastern Europe. Okay. and to the, some of the higher value products to their plant in Germany. Mm-hmm. But when they had a look at what we were doing, they said, you know, you're doing great, you're doing, actually doing better than us. So that plant survives and thrives to this day, and I'm very proud of that. It's manufacturing in Ireland in 1975, what, what, what state was Ireland in as a, as a manufacturing base at that time, and how has it changed since? It, it was pretty basic. It was very labour intensive. People had just the vaguest idea of world-class manufacturing. Language evolves. Um, so there was very, very few people doing it um, or even thinking about it. 
Uh, and subsequently, there was a huge uh, fallout as costs began to rise. Uh, there was a, a flight out of Ireland in many ways by lots of companies for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that uh, negative trade union activity uh, drove out a lot of them, uh, where unions were just allowed to become too strong and, and uh, management too weak. Uh, and uh, they install, you know, uh, negative practices and demarcations and so forth, which I think drove out. I, I, I could mention a long list of businesses that flew out of Ireland, and I think that they were at the root of that. Other, uh, others were just costed out. To, in some extent, you know, I know we're going to talk probably about China later. Yeah. Five or six years ago, standing before a room full of, of GMs, uh, of owners of manufacturing businesses in China, telling them that they faced the same choice that we in the West faced, like Ireland, like the UK, like and North America, mm-hmm. faced uh, back in the 70s and early 80s. And if they didn't modernize, they wouldn't survive. Sure. And there'd, there'd be the bloodbath. And subsequently, that 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 has happened in China. There was a, a big uh, people moved to uh, Vietnam and uh, other places. Yeah, it's an ongoing it's an ongoing process. You, you've mentioned a few times um, lean manufacturing or world class manufacturing, and I think jargon about it. You know, like Gemba and Kaizen and Kanban and Muda. But in in layman's terms, what what is lean manufacturing? Toyota are the best manufacturer in my view, on the face of the earth, not just of cars, they're just the best of the best. And uh, But that philosophy and culture is, is in their DNA. If you go into uh, join a Toyota organization as a young graduate, you know, you're going to spend, uh, I think it's 18 months, it used to be 18 months, it probably still is, on the shop floor working on, on, on the assembly or something. So that you, you, know, you, know, you know what you're, it gives you credibility, in other words, and, and it, it, it introduces you to the real world that mm-hmm. you're going to influence what your changes or whatever, however you're supported in the future. Um, to introduce Lean into a, a traditional organization, as we would know it, where the, it's, the management is top down, is very difficult. Mm. Uh, over 90% of, of all Lean initiatives fail. And this is a figure that, that I, I suspected uh, for quite some time. And it took the Lean Enterprise Institute, you know, several years to acknowledge that. Yeah. And you know, they are acknowledged as the enterprise that best represent lean, I guess, in, in, in the Western world anyway these days. So, but to me, it's, um, it's, it's simple. It's about putting people, it's philosophy of, of acknowledging that people are, are your best resource, are your most valuable resource by far, and you must invest in them and involve them, allow them to be involved in, the, in decision-making around their workstation at whatever level in the organization that they work in. Um, invest in them, invest in their development in their future. And then the processes that you will introduce, like 5S, like uh, the deadly waste and so forth, they just take to that like a duck to water. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I know, uh, you know, in my 40 years in this business, I know of no better way to get the most dramatic results and then the most dramatic of transformations. And, you know, I have been doing this for a long time. Uh, in I remember in after I in from Orabi I went to they asked me to go to Iowa City to prepare the largest toothbrush facility in the world uh, for closure within two years and on the basis that it had become it had resisted change it had become it was no longer competitive with its sister plants the Orabi plant in Newbridge uh, the Mexico and uh, an emerging China but. In two years, you know, uh, I led a turnaround there that uh, just transformed that uh, that uh, workforce and that factory, and made it easily the best plant within Gillette. Mm-hmm. And that plant, uh, you know, I visited there two years ago, mm-hmm. and they're still expanding. And they rented premises across the road recently to take in product from Germany and from some other places uh, that they were importing. 
uh, to produce them there. Mm -hmm. So this works, Patrick, and it works dramatically, uh, but it's to implement it in a traditional organization is not easy because if you don't have the absolute support and commitment from the most senior people, you have no chance. Mm -hmm. And I will not accept a project unless I get a, get a commitment from the most senior people that they will support uh, our activities and follow our path. There's many things that can be discussed and, and molded and, and, and shaped, but there are some principles. And one of those is, which is the, often the most difficult for an organization to face, that on the average leadership team on, a, on, a, on an average factory, there are, about two, there are usually two people who are not going to make it, who will endanger the project, um, slow it down, um, uh, unless they're, 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 they're neutralized. So even when I get the, the full commitment from, this, from the most senior person, you know, I will say to him or her, uh, a few months from now, I may come to you and say that, look, you know, this senior manager is not cutting it and they must be removed. Uh, either to another part of the organization where they cannot damage this project or uh, whatever the solution uh, uh, you may you may offer them. And if they don't, uh, we walk. And that way, our, our projects are pretty much guaranteed to give you terrific results. But the organization that invites us in must follow our path. And do the, the people who you find have to be removed... Uh, is there a commonality in terms of the disciplines they come from, or is, they, or is it random? Can it be anybody on the, on the site leadership team? It can be random, but most likely they're to be found for the people who are responsible for our operations. That could be engineering. Mm. It could be the, 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 the shop floor. Uh, the people who feel the need to protect it for whatever reason, or their egos get in the way. Uh, or they cannot buy into delegation, but this is you no know, eighty percent of what managers do is absolutely useless, mm. uh, and it's it's even worse than that because the work that they create is also useless work. So this uh, this absolutely devours valuable resources, you know, doing work that need not be done. And when when a manager is confronted with that, it's for, it can be very difficult for him or her to accept that their life up to now has been pretty so, much wasted, yeah. and. Um, but there's a new way for them, and what I say to them, and those that that buy that message, prosper and go on, you know, to 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 have a much more uh, fulfilling life. Mm -hmm. That the work that they do will allow them to move to a level where they can truly plan and work in the future, and not on yesterday's issues, yeah. because there there so many organisations are consumed with yesterday's problems, which are going to be today's problems and tomorrow's problems. Because unless you root cause them and drive them out, they will, you will, they will consume you every day. And some people, I remember in, 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 on a project in Wales a couple of years ago, there was a, a very well thought of head of manufacturing who was brilliant at putting fires out. But the problem was he was putting the same fires out every day. And when I tried to change him, um, he absolutely resisted it. Uh, his ego got in the way of logic. And in the end, he had to be removed mm -hmm. because it was it just would not work with him and this and this approach um to transforming a, a manufacturing operation does it vary from country to country you've done this in many different countries does it vary from country to country culture to culture do you need a different approach in ireland versus america versus china and um, no uh, first of all you know if you're going to work work in a different like china for example 
uh, was a very different culture. Um, I worked very hard to understand the culture before I went there and in my early days there. And uh, but I, I learned uh, some things that that some things don't change and they're truly global. That people need to be valued. They need security. Uh, you know, secure. In other words, that they have a job to go to. Will that job be there next year? Um, they want to be valued within the workforce. They want to be involved. And if you do that, they will love you and they will follow you. And this is uh, uh, that was that's the same in 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 China. It's the same in the USA. It's the same in Czech Republic, and Poland, and Hungary, and all those and the UK, and all those countries where where where, where, where I've I've worked and been implemented successful project transformation projects. Uh, the basics are the same. Yeah. And the, 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 what really uh, gets me is sometimes is there are so many people out there who overcomplicate things. Uh, the, the language is changing. You know, for example, you know, people are talking today about digitalization, uh, blockchain, and God knows what else. Mm-hmm. Well, the world is awash with data that is useless. Uh, you know, so many organizations that I go into, you cannot trust the data that is being produced. They will tell you in the initial discussions, yeah, sure, we got this, we got that. But when, when we actually dig into the data, we find that it's often unreliable. The mm-hmm. database is, is often where the heart, the heart of, 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 uh, of uh, issues are. Uh, for example, you know, when you look at those reports that finance usually uh, produce, uh, you get variances here and variances there. And, but if you dig in, get in deep in behind those into the databases and who is maintaining them and how are they maintained, yeah. very often you find big, big errors that can really mislead you and send you off in a different direction and, you know, sure. waste resources, waste time. Yeah. And since since the beginning of your career, which I think you said spanned maybe four decades mm-hmm. uh, of manufacturing, you, you've lived through this era of economic globalization, the multinational corporation. Um, putting plants, supply chain all, all around the world. So how have you seen the, the strategies of multinational corporations change in that period in terms of manufacturing, procurement, talent management, and so on? Well, I think as they expanded and they got into different markets, uh, they began to realize, sometimes very slowly, that uh, if you're going to service market, local markets, you need to be manufacturing there or close by. Uh, but to do that, you you also have to be very careful. For example, there was a, a flight of manufacturing from North America and the West to China, uh, and in the case of North America, also to Mexico in the 70s and 80s and 90s. It actually accelerated in the late 80s into the 90s. But they didn't always go with the, with for the right reasons. They didn't always go because they had a big market there. Uh, they went there uh, on, on, on looking at uh, shallow inf- information uh, that they would, uh, you know, say two thirds of their manufacturing cost that they went to China, for example, and ship it back to the USA. But that doesn't work out, you know, the, the, uh, because that was the plan that that Gillette had when they were going to shut the Oral B plant I mentioned earlier in Iowa City. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nobody had uh, confronted them with the, the fact that it was 57 days by land and sea from China to North America. And to do that in a fast moving consumer goods environment would have been disastrous for the business. So. Uh, so a lot of uh, businesses who, who who relocated down to 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 China regretted it later if they didn't have a strong emerging local market to service mm-hmm. or an Asian market to service. So, but overall, I think that globalization. Sorry, the other uh, thing that if if you don't get good at supply chains, you know you're going to really founder. 
So you have to be good at, at how you're going to ship stuff around. Uh, you know, your raw materials, you know, how do you get, where do your raw materials come from? Can you source them locally? And if you're going to have a local market and you're going to have manufacturing there, are all your raw materials available from there or nearby? Or if not, if you're going to have to ship them in from the West, you know, are they very bulky? Are they, are they, are they, are they heavy? Because these all impact on the cost, uh, ultimately. Um, and these are, are decisions to be made when you consider all of these things. And where, where do you think we are with the globalisation of production now? Are we in reverse? Are we changing form? You know, we've had lots of geopolitical tensions, trade wars, Brexit, rising nationalism and so on. Where do you think we're at now? Well, I think it's a phase, Patrick, but I think it's, it's unstoppable. I think, for example, there has been uh, some sensible uh, uh, retransfer of manufacturing from China, for example, to North America. I think this has got little to do with uh, uh, with uh, President Trump. I, I think that you know the people I know down there who were talking about it. You know, we're talking about it five or six years ago, seven years ago. Uh, you know, the, chi- the Chinese markets are there's a huge market, but they're not always easy to break. They're not always easy to crack. And um, if they were, if they had moved, lots of them had moved uh, with the view to shipping their products back to North America, and that just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make economic sense unless it's wafers or something, you know, like in, like in, an Intel would do. Yeah. Um, but if you uh, are producing products of any bulk at all or any weight, um, unless you've, you know, you're going to burn uh, your money, uh, air freighting them back, yeah. uh, huge cost, uh, and shipping them is just too long. So some of it might be a little bit got to do with Trump, but, but most of it, uh, these people have decided to do it anyway. Yeah. And Ireland, of course, has benefited uh, tremendously through the 80s, 90s and 2000s as a multinational manufacturing base. In the future, though, where do you see Ireland's success lying? Is it there or is it somewhere else? And what does the government need to be doing? And what do probably more importantly, Irish business owners need to be doing? Well, I think that uh, just we stick with manufacturing for the moment. uh, I think that manufacturing has done a reasonable job of transforming itself here. I think much of the, of the, the, the labor-intensive stuff is gone. Most of it is gone. Uh, and the people have been moving up that value chain in, in, in terms. I think there are some sectors left in Ireland that, like in the pharma business, where profits were huge and they didn't have too much financial pressure. So I still think there's, there's uh, pockets there that need to modernize. Um, um, and if they don't, you know, they will get in trouble. The, also in, the, in the, the local indigenous industries like meat, for example, I think that there's a lot of catch up that they uh, need to do. But I think that in the main, uh, we have a fairly solid base here in manufacturing, and I think that that will continue. I think that uh, the Brexit can be a disaster or it can be an opportunity. Mm-hmm. I, I think that uh, certainly, um, I, I think that I don't think it will impact uh, where manufacturing is located uh, when it comes to Ireland too much. Um, and what do Irish businesses need to do? I think they need to make sure that they, they're competitive, that they're adopting lean thinking, lean practices into their, into their organizations, uh, offer those people, put people at the center of, of their activities, invest in them, nurture them, love them, take care of them. And if they do all those things, and of course, have a good marketing strategy. You know, then they'll 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 prosper. Mm-hmm. Any business will prosper if they have a decent product and know how to market it, and if they take care of their people. Yeah, and then China's a place you you spent quite a lot of time, particularly in the last uh, decade or so. So, what do you see as China's uh, key strengths? So, what are some of the challenges it faces uh, in the future? 
Well, I think that you know, China is very misunderstood. I think that their system of government is uh, quite like uh, the, the the USA system. Uh, this may be a surprise to listeners, but um, you no, know, I looked, spent a lot of time looking at it and talking to government officials down there and trying to understand it. And if you understand the the, the federal system and in the USA, where you know the, the big stuff is like state is nationwide, and then each state has a has a fair degree of independence for smaller stuff. It's quite like that in in China too. The big stuff is centralized in Beijing, with the Communist Party, the centrist stuff, and then the the regions. And there's 56 of them. You know, they have a, a surprising degree of autonomy on stuff that Beijing doesn't concern itself too much with. But the great strength has been the fact that. Uh, they decide the big stuff, and that big stuff gets done. And I, I think I have a great example with the the connecting uh, the, the fast train, which you have probably sat on too. Yeah, I've sat on it many times. Shanghai. That train service that runs from Beijing to Shanghai. I mean, that was a phenomenal project that was that was uh, implemented. It used to take several days and nights to complete that journey. You know, now it takes I don't know uh, 18 hours or something, 16 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, but the I was I was living in in Shanghai when that was being planned, and they had sent a team of people around the world to look at railway systems and and so on for a couple of years. And they came back, and when they were were, were plotting their way from Shanghai uh, through Shanghai, they had they came up with three routes, and uh, they threw these out then to the local uh, parties who were going to who campaigned for, well, this should not be an R patch and, and whatever for these reasons, and to give them I don't know, six months or something or three months I can't remember, but. One of the ladies working in our finance department was living in one of those areas, and she used to talk to her, talk to me about it, and I was very interested in, in the process. Well, the thing was that uh, this team was going to select one of those, uh, but they would listen to the, the information that came to them and make a decision accordingly. Yeah. The people then living within those those that area that was going to be impacted, that would have to move house and so forth, or move apartment, they were given they were asked to fill in. Uh, they were given a list of areas that they could pick from, choose their option one, two, and three. But they were going to have to take one of those. Um, so that option, would, one of the options would have been granted to them, but they had no other other uh, uh, point of appeal. They had to be accepted. So in other words, Patrick, what I'm trying to say is that great projects get done over there. Yeah. Whereas uh, you cannot do a great project like that anymore in the USA, because it would, uh, sorry, anymore uh, here, because it would take years and take billions, because everyone exercises their democratic right to litigate. <laughs> and this is a disaster. And I use, uh, when I talk about the marvels of China, because I, I really am a fan of their system, uh, there's far more democracy there than we realize. And you know, I don't know any Chinese person who's unhappy with it, who's mm-hmm. deeply unhappy with the system. I know far more here who are, who are unhappy with our system. Um, but, um, when I when I compare in, India with uh, China, you know, um, the British left India in 1946 and left behind uh, their, their democratic system. They, but and it's so hard to get things done in India because everyone exercises their democratic right. You know, I think I remember in one province when Gillette were trying to sort out a supply chain there, there was one province where there was an 11 year waiting list for, for litigants. Because they were litigating against supply chains and what what bigger companies were trying to do. Whereas in China, all that stuff just gets pushed to the side. It doesn't happen, but it's for the greater good. And if you, uh, you know, I think China is just one of those economic miracles. Uh, but it lifted uh, a billion people out of poverty and offered them opportunity uh, and a far better standard of living than their parents 
And for that, I think the vast, vast majority of the Chinese population are very grateful. And your, your current business now, LCL Consult, um, how does it help uh, clients? What kind of business benefits can clients expect to achieve when they're working with you? Is that, uh, you know, supporting organizations that are concerned for their future. And there's still so many of them out there that are. Uh, they're struggling for all sorts of reasons. Uh, they cannot, for whatever reason, implement you know, real good change, positive change in their organization. One of the, the benefits of, you know, uh, personally, pa- Patrick, I don't like consultants. I think that we are rightfully up there at that top table with politicians and lawyers because it's populated by charlatans and people who mislead people and people who are consumed by and driven by by, by revenue rather than doing the right thing. So um, I've been in this consultancy business since leaving Procter & Gamble in 2009, but I don't think of myself as a regular consultant. I still think of myself as someone who can transform factories and warehouses and, and distribution warehouses and so forth. And where can, where can people find out more then about uh, your work uh, and your thoughts on the future? What's your website, LinkedIn, articles, publications and so on? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, we're still uh, working uh, with people in different parts of the world transforming their business, securing their future, making sure that they're going to be there 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, and energizing and re-energizing their workforces that, and giving them a much better uh, quality of life within their, in the workplace. Energizing and freeing them up from this nonsense of top-down and this nonsense of bureaucracy, where 80% of what people do, managers in particular, is utterly useless. So people can find me uh, on the... On my website, www.lclconsult.com. They can get me on email, leem at lclconsult.com or inquiries at lcl.com. Or they can call me 086 9759. That's brilliant, Liam. It's been fascinating. And uh, as always, a uh, pleasure to talk to you. And many thanks for joining us here today. 